0: Hi everyone, my name is Brian L. Davis. I'm from the group Pink Martini, and I'm also a total devotee of the, uh, the music known as Samba. Uh, I used to have a group in Portland, Oregon called the Lions of Batacada and I'm supportive of the local baterias here and on the west coast in general. Uh, I teach you this thing called the California Brazil Camp for the last 20 some years and I'm here to tell you about a campaign that we in the Pacific Northwest have done before and now we're expanding. We wanted to make this bigger and it's for a group called Trofeo Bateria. Uh, It's a a group of judges in Rio that started in 2015. Presenting trophies in 2016. The judges are the maestries, the people that you see. Uh, they're not present maestries because that wouldn't be fair, but they've all been maestries. Or they're all like, uh, they're aficionados. These are people who are. Real Sambistas, real the Bruno Moraes, one of the founders of it. I've known him since he was a kid. He's been in Mosadaji since he was a child. Uh, these people are Sambistas. and so they've started this thing. The uh, the Trofeo Batteria gives trophies to individual sections of the batrrias, like in the big carnival thing. Grupo Especial gets uh, points in the that go towards the the escola winning or not winning. Um, this this they judge individual alas, individual sections. So it will be 2019 best you uh, t- uh, section. I think it was uh, he- he- Liupojinia. I think. I think. But anyway, they, they're the winners. So that the, the next was the best tambourine section, the best kuika section, the best maestri the best contra maestries, the honor of maestri of the past. They do so much, and it uh, creates respect. It creates inspiration, and it's fosters a huge Samba community in Rio. It really, really, really adds to it. So why we're here is, you know, things are rough in Brazil. They have been for a long time, and it doesn't look like they're getting any better. So this is a chance for us as Americans, as Europeans, who uh, love and support Samba, to give back. If you want to know what you're giving back to, I suggest you go to their website, which is trofeobateria.com.br. T-R-O-F-E-U-B-A-T-E-R-I-A dot com dot V-R. You will see that there. You're going to see videos and recordings that they high quality good recording in the thick of it and if there's a good kaisha player they're near them if there's a great tambourine player a great creek player they're near them you get to hear the best and they don't focus on one guy but you will hear at all the escolas. you will hear they recently started this thing where they're they're uh, featuring uh, they're almost like baseball cards they, where they do like the little history and the little rundown of the personality and the and the qualifications of different maestries of all the grupo special it's super informative super Super cool so you want to be a part of that join us by donating money Uh, we're going to help buy their trophies the trophies are these cool little whistles that they go out and hand out to the groups Uh, when they do that is incredibly incredibly exciting They they bring these trophies to the the different groups. The groups know they're coming. Sometimes they've made their own T-shirts that say, Trofeo Bateria, best, Shokal you section 2019, whatever. And it's amazing. It's so very, very cool. It promotes samba in Rio big time. So uh, you want to go to PayPal and donate through Brian at LionsOfBatucada.com. This is B-R-I-A-N at LionsOfBatucada, L-I-O-N-S of... B-A-T-U-C-A-D-A dot com. Brian at com through PayPal. Uh, donate. Um, if you do, go Samba. Another wonderful thing you should check out has got this thing going. That if you, anybody who donates 25 bucks or more, you can be uh, put into a drawing to win a tambourine. A really nice, from Rio, great quality tambourine. Um, there's also, Bruno Moraes has thrown in Five T-shirts, so we're going forty bucks on those or more. Uh, if you want, you, you'll be into that drawing. Once we have the winners of that drawing, we'll contact you and find out your size, and, and I'll bring you a shirt, or I'll bring it home and mail it to you. Uh, so. Um, this is something that is a way for us as zombistas in America and Europe to give back. And this is a cool thing to give back to. Trofeo Bateria. Look it up on the web. You'll be amazed. So thank you very much. And any amount's okay. There's no, You've sent five bucks. Send anything you want. If anything adds up. Again, it's really cool you do it. Thank you very much. <music>
1: Hello out there, everybody. Welcome to the Brazilian Beat. Join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion music-making community, one interview at a time. This is Courtney, and I'm here by myself today. Diana is not feeling well, so um, so I'm doing the intro solo today. Before we get to our guest today, I would like to talk about our sponsor, GoSamba.net. So this is my business. I am importing drums and gear from Brazil, and I'm about to place a new order. If you guys want anything special, let me know. We can get it. I recently ordered a giant surdo for somebody. <laughs> 26, well, this, per, this person ordered a bunch of stuff, but one of the things they wanted was a 26 inch surdo and a 24 inch surdu. <laughs> um, I've also ordered the jingles and, and rods for shokaius um, and bags and all kinds of things. So let me know if you uh, need some gear. Happy to order it for you. You can email me Courtney at gosamba.net. C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y. Gosamba is here to support this community, um, just like this podcast. So let me know what you need. So today on the podcast, I'm really excited. We have Lee Clippard. He is the current director of Austin Samba School. He's been a member of Austin Samba since 2005, and he's been the director since 2017. If you guys remember episode two, we had Jacare and Imani on, and Jacare has, has passed it on to Lee. His passion for Brazilian percussion was ignited in 2002 in Madison, Wisconsin, where he joined the Hanfibians. Prior to that, he played brass instruments in middle and high school and with the University of Texas Longhorn Marching Band. He has attended several California Brazil camps and has been fortunate to travel to Rio de Janeiro several times to study percussion and culture. When not leading Austin Samba, he is the director of communications at the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center in Austin, Texas, where he loves dancing among the wildflowers. He sometimes plays the role of botanist or entomologist on television. I want to see some of these things. Uh, he cherishes spending time with his daughter, hiking with his dog, swimming in natural springs and creeks, camping, expanding his mind, and traveling. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Lee. He's very thoughtful and has a lot of interesting insights into how to run a big uh, Saba school in the United States. So enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for being here. It's really, I'm excited that you're here.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today.
1: Yeah. So we have interviewed, um, this isn't our first time interviewing somebody from Austin. <laughs> As you know, we interviewed Jacare and Imani. They were our second interview for this podcast. Um, they are very supportive of our podcast in the beginning. It was really nice. But, um, now you've, Austin has gone through some transitions in leadership and now you're, uh, taking over the reins. Um, Before we get into that part, though, I want you to um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in all this.
2: Sure. Um, So I've been interested in music since I can remember anything. Um, Since I was three or four, my mom used to take me to parades, and I fell in love with marching band really early Mm. on. We used to go to college football games. I grew up in South Carolina. And we used to go to Clipson football games, and uh, I loved that so much. And I, I would bring, um, my mom likes to tell this funny story about me taking a, they had like a kazoo sort of trumpet, like one of these little toy trumpets. And um, she took, she and my dad took me to a game uh, when I was a kid, probably, I don't know, four or five And I played that thing through the whole game and drove everyone crazy around them. Um, So I've been.
1: Boo Boo Zayla or whatever those things are. You're like that guy?
2: I'm that guy, but it was small and I was four. So I was really cute. (laughs) Um, But no, I've been, and you know, just moved by marching band since I was a kid. And. I um, always wanted to play marching band, and um, I had little toy drums, and mostly I was interested in drums to get going, um, or since the beginning, but when middle school came around, for some reason I chose trumpet, and I cannot remember why I did that, um, hmm. though I think it might have something to do with the fact that I had taken some percussion lessons in some intervening year um, and it was so strict and, um, oh. I just did not connect with it at all. It was just, you know, quarter notes and how to hold the stick and, you yeah. know, too rudimentary maybe, yeah. um, yeah. not enough, like just free flowing, let's play some rhythms. Um,
3: yeah.
2: and I think that may have just kind of shut me down on the drum front but um, anyway, I started with trumpet and I played in middle school and um, actually formed a marching band at my middle school. You did? I did. We were called the Youth Marchers and me and a couple of my friends um, formed it. And we it was in eighth grade and we performed and we, we asked um, uh, one of the local high school Girls to be our drum major and teach us how to march. And so I can't remember how many people were in the group, but maybe let's say fifteen or so. Were um, there
1: teachers involved in this, or you guys just did it? No, we just
2: did it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, my you know my mom was super supportive, and then um, my friends' moms were very supportive as well. And um, we practiced how to march in a parade in a parking lot across from the local high school. And you know we had a little drum line and trumpets wow. and saxophones and the whole nine yards and um, we our uniforms were these red sweaters that we wore for the Christmas parade. So that was our big goal was to do this Christmas it's parade. So, awesome. <laughs> so nerdy, uh, but it was really fun. Oh so
1: amazing. And... I mean, it's like nerdy, but it's like nerds with a plan. <laughs>
2: Taking over the world by marching. Um, So yeah, that was great. We got, I think we won like third place. We got a little trophy and we all got trophies. So that was really exciting. Um, We played in another, we were invited to play in another parade um, in a nearby town after that. And then some of us kind of kept going a little bit and played. We had a middle school soccer team, I think. We didn't have football in South Carolina in middle school. Um, But we did have a soccer team and we played drums. I switched to drums and we played drums in the stands for this soccer game. Awesome. Um, So, did that and then went on to high school marching band and then went on to college marching band. I played in the University of Texas Longhorn marching band for a few years. Mm -hmm. So, I've just been really into um, group music making and marching since I can remember.
1: Yeah, you have, yeah, it's almost like you were born to do this. <laughs> it's what I, you gravitated toward as a kid. Wow.
2: Yes. And I really thought for a long time, I was going to be a band director. That would be my career. Um, in kind of late middle school, early high school, I used to have graph paper and I would chart out halftime shows. Um, I would have, you know, I'd just decide, oh, there's oh. 50 people in this marching band. And I would I would have this whole thing charted out based on, I don't even know now, just random songs I thought would be fun to play as a marching band. <laughs> I don't even remember. Wow. But, yeah.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> you are like made for this position.
2: I, mm-hmm. Yeah. In some ways, I, I think um, I have been doing something like it for a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um so how did you start getting into Brazilian music?
2: Um that happened in a couple of different ways. I moved to Madison, Wisconsin from Seattle oh, yeah. where I was for a little while to go to grad school. And I very quickly met my future husband John there and um you know, I was doing grad school in entomology. I have a background in entomology and biology.
1: Oh, I thought and, it was I thought you were a botanist. Entomology.
2: Well, I work at a botanic garden now and I I I pretend to I'm a I I'm I'm a pretend botanist, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to to increase my knowledge every day about botany. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But my background is in entomology. And so I was, you know, kind of nose to the grindstone during grad school, mm-hmm. but I had met John, and John was actually really interested in kind of randomly. Brazilian music and he hmm. had he had a love for music I shared a love for music and um, at the time he had several CDs that um, he introduced me to and so I got first kind of hooked into Brazilian music that way um, hmm. and then there was a group in Madison called the Hanfibians and yeah. they're a wonderful samba group there in madison and they used to practice in the park down the street from the apartment i was living in but i thought they were just a group of people that um i didn't realize it was an open group i didn't know what it was i didn't go ask them about it i didn't know anything about it yeah so i was kind of vaguely aware of it and then when right when i graduated from uh grad school in 2002 i was at a summer festival there's summer festivals like every weekend in Madison, because they just pack it all in because it's really cold. It's short. Yeah. short summer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So this was a, a neighborhood festival and um, the amphibians were there and they were on the stage and they were doing their thing and it was just wonderful. It was so cool. And then they came marching down into the crowd. And when they marched by, there was a woman who was playing with them who I knew from grad school. And so I was like, oh my God. And after that, I asked her, what is that group? How do you join? And she just laid it out, out for me. All the things that we all know about all of our groups is that they're a community group and you can come anytime. And so I think I even went maybe the next week. Hmm. I think uh, rehearsals were on Sundays and they threw me on First surdu. And then about a month later, they had a gig and they were short on First surdus. And so I started and just have been going ever since.
1: Awesome. Did you cross over with Henzo at all in the amphibians?
2: I did not, no. Yeah. Um, he... Yeah, there's there's um, several people that have graduated from amphibians and kind of moved <laughs> out into the world. In fact, uh, Derek over in the Bay Area was an original founder of the amphibians and we used to rehearse oh, really? in his house in Madison.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So then how did you end up back in Texas? So you were in South North Carolina or South Carolina?
2: South Carolina, I spent a lot of my growing up years in South Carolina and then moved to Houston for high school. Uh, My dad was transferred to Houston for work, and so we all moved there. Um, And then I went to undergrad at UT in Austin, and um, then after that just sort of traveled around, was in Madison for – six years and did grad school and then stayed there for a few years and then uh, moved back to Austin in
1: 2005. Gotcha.
2: Which is when I started with Austin Samba.
1: Gotcha. So you were already um, involved in Brazilian music and then you were like entered this huge community. Was it pretty big by the, by the time you were, um, got in, like moved to Austin?
2: Uh, Austin Samba was not, no, Austin Samba was not very large. It was, it was larger than the amphibians on, on a good day. Um, but it was not anything like what it is today. Um, I had met Jacare actually, um, at California Brazil camp, Hmm. maybe the year before I moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. And I remember that he was talking about Austin Samba, but, uh, and it was founded in 2001 So this was probably 2004. So just a few years later.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Um, So I had met him then and kind of vaguely knew about it. But I remember when I was looking for jobs around the country, finding a city with a Samba school was critical. Um, And I remember looking at jobs in Boston and there wasn't really anything going on there. And I felt like, Oh, (laughs) I don't know. I'm kind of addicted to this thing now. And it's such a wonderful, um, hobby or or passion, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so when I was, when I got a job here in Austin, I made sure Austin Samba was still here and was, um, you know, ready to go.
1: Isn't that funny how it, it totally changes your life in that for, for a lot of people, like, you own there's only now there's a limited number of places in the world you can move because they have to have a yes. assembly group. <laughs> yes,
2: or you have to have the wherewithal to start one yourself.
1: Right, right, yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like an addiction. It's crazy.
1: It is like an addiction or a cult.
2: <laughs> Both of those things. <laughs> you know what I think? It's we can. We'll probably circle back around to, to this in other ways in this interview, but um, it's. Ultimately, it's a community and it's a way to bond with so many people. And I yeah. think while the music and uh, dance is super infectious, there is absolutely no doubt about that. And it's challenging and it's interesting and it works all parts of your brain and your body. I think kind of what keeps you going in it is the the community of Samba in this country and around the world. I mean, it's just, it's so deep and it's just a wonderful way to connect with people. Um, So I think it's, it's big. It's all those things.
1: I completely agree. And I think for people, it's kind of taken the place of what um, like more religion used to take maybe for our parents' generation where religion was served the, purpose of community as well as you know a spiritual practice I, th- I feel like for a lot of people who've discovered Samba it's become their community that you know we go see each other in the hospital and if somebody's sick we help take care of them we call people when they don't show up and you know it's kind of served that role
2: absolutely it's a beautiful thing yeah um, you know Jacare used to always talk about the tribe and how we've become such a fractured society um, with technology and just the way that our lives are so mobile now and and mm-hmm. not really in these small communities. And uh, it was his, one of his goals was to sort of build that tribe, um, those people that will come see you in the hospital and support you and enjoy times of joy and sadness. And um, I think he, it, I don't think he, he was successful in doing that and i think that um our little samba communities all around this country have that same or play that same role
1: do you have advice for i mean i guess from talking to members of of um austin samba at brazil camp um there is a stronger strong sense of community and stronger than i have known in in other communities i've been involved with do you have advice for for either leadership or group members or how does that come about? Like how, or what did Jacare do and what, and are there things that you've taken from him that you've learned to continue to kind of keep that, that strong community going?
2: Wow. That's such a really big question. Um, (laughs) And I don't have a super clear answer for it. I think there's a wonderful, gumbo here in Austin and in Texas. Um, I think there's some cultural qualities that are here that uh, promote that kind of community. Um, I think um, Austin is a very open culture and um, always very friendly culture Um, I think that helps, though, you could argue that, you know, many places where Samba also exists, Boulder, Portland, Seattle also has this kind of very open kind of communal um, culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it could be just uh, a circumstance of the people that have become part of Austin Samba. Um, I do think that it's in large part, our sense of community comes from Jacare and how he organized the school and how he um, interacted with everyone. Hmm. What, what those specific qualities are, I'm not sure. I think there's some of it that has to do with how hard he, pushed us to achieve greatness.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, and, uh, you know, we work really hard and sometimes pushed to some pretty ex- pretty far extremes um, to achieve greatness. And I think when you're working together to be great, you help each other and you support each other it creates that sort of strength because you're, um, you know, in a sports arena, of course, you're coming together as a team to beat another team. Um, we don't have that here. Of course, carnival culture, samba culture in Rio does have that. They are, you know, coming together to try to compete. And Jacare wanted to, uh, maintain, um, that culture for ourselves and be true to the idea of the samba school even though we're not competing in carnival we're kind of just competing with ourselves in a way um we still have always been striving toward being the best we can be and yeah i think that has contributed a lot to that community the supportive community yeah
3: um
2: There's other things that we do, you know, I think, uh, to some success and some not, I think, um, in, in a lot of Samba schools or Samba groups around the country, including ours, you could find yourself being a person that a member of the community that comes in just after rehearsal starts and leaves just after it ends. And maybe you almost never even talk to anybody. Um, Mm -hmm. cause it is loud, you know, and there's just drums playing and it's like two hours of drums. And basically you, you can nod to people and you smile and you know each other, but you don't know each other. Um, so I think it's definitely good to build events outside of that experience. Um, whether it's like barbecues or, you know, parties, whatever those things Mm -hmm. are so that you're able to bond with each other, know more about each other outside of the Samba school. And I think that happens pretty naturally across most Samba schools in the country, I would think.
1: Yeah, people hang out outside for sure.
2: Yeah, and I always wish that we were doing it more. Um, I think one of the most magically amazing things about Samba groups, and I mean, I can speak to, to, to Austin Samba in particular, I don't know if this is the case with all of them, but is the amount of time that people give up, adults give up from their extraordinarily busy lives, um, professional adults with children, with aging parents, with you know all sorts of things going on in their lives. And um, it's just amazing to me that we commit to doing this thing that's not required
1: no, but totally volunteer <laughs> totally volunteer no
2: one's getting paid um, no one in the leadership is getting paid and we do it out of love for I think we initially do it out of love for the the music and the dance and then we start doing it because like I was saying earlier the community we we start forming these, deep bonds with these people that we spend every week with and we don't want to let them down.
1: I think ideally that is exactly how it would work. I think a lot of people (laughs) see it and they are like, Ooh, I want to do that. I want to join that. And I think initially when people join there, they are there for themselves and only kind of there for what they're going to get out of it. But if the community is strong and if you can, pull that person into the community aspect. They want to be there for the community. They want to be there not just for themselves, but for the other people. Definitely. I don't don't know if that resonates with you, but that's kind of the way I feel is the way it would function in a, in a healthy way. But um, sometimes certain individuals and, and groups just can't get past the level of people only being there for their solely for their own benefit and solely to satisfy some kind of, um, internal need to perform. And, and I don't know, I, yeah. I, I don't know how to describe that, but I, I feel like a lot of groups that, um, are like hovering around 20, 25 people. That's, they're kind of stuck in this area. They can't form a strong culture. And maybe that's because the leadership isn't necessarily like there, or I don't know, I don't know what it is, but, um, you, you get this separation between there's like people who are better players who can kind of have this vision for it being better, but then you always have to kind of play towards the newer members who are, um, just coming in. And so you never kind of get to that point where everyone's sort of pushing together to make the community better. Does this make sense?
2: Yes. I think that, um, I think some, some of it is scale and I think Austin Sama benefits from being, very large and
1: um well i want to talk to you about that transition you made because it sounds like you were there the whole through the transition into a larger group and you and you and i have had conversations about this in the past but i want to i would love for you to kind of describe that transition from a smaller group to a bigger group and how that happened
2: sure so um we when i joined in 2005 uh the school had been around for four to five years so we were founded in 2001 um and we had we already had a, a this the Austin Samba School encompass dance and drum already um so we had both of those efforts mm. happening and the dance group i would say when i joined was probably 6 to 8 people um i think there were maybe like 20 drummers something like that sometimes less sometimes a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and very strong i mean they're great players and um some some of us are still part of it uh that were originally back here back in the group back then um and i think that we were in a relatively small rehearsal space and we got kicked out of that um but actually that's neither here nor there moving to a different space did not allow us to be bigger I think what started happening is that um, just time and inertia, more than anything, is that Austin started getting bigger, and we start we play a lot, um, and it, it, we we play around town a lot, and I think that exposure was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not just doing a few corporate gigs um, and and a parade. You know, we are doing a lot of parades and a lot of gigs. Um, Also, I think we benefited very much from being part of Carnival Brasileiro, um, which is a huge carnival celebration here um, that has been going on for several decades. And that gave us really great two things, exposure. So um, every year we would be exposed to, you know, a few thousand people that were coming to the show, but also just right. through the media and all the other kinds of promotions that were going along uh, with it. Gotcha.
3: Uh-huh. And
2: then that also gave us the the one carrot at the end of the stick. That was the one big show that we were um, striving to work, that we worked toward every year. And right. so I think that event with its with its exposure and then doing all these other events around and you know Jacques is is the godfather of Brazilian music culture here in Austin in so many ways. I mean he he worked himself to the bone, like organizing Brazil Day shows and Mardi Gras shows and you know pulling all the the bands together to make them happen. And mm. it's through all of his efforts and trying to pull people that are it's kind of playing Brazilian music around Austin together into one community that I think has also contributed to the growth. So it's Mm -hmm. all those things, just kind of this inertia that kept building and building and building. So, you know, as we grew, um, we started having to, to, um, organize differently Um, so we would need to have different levels in the bateria, for example, different kinds of dance groups. So, you know, I think as, as an organization grows in size, it has to have division of labor and, um, Mm -hmm. different, um, different sections, basically. Um, it's sort of the same thing. You know, I studied social insects in graduate school and I studied wasps and, um, there are paper wasps that they live under the eaves of your house, and you know, they they make a, a little nest, and they're all sisters, and there's there's no division of labor. They all do everything. They all build the nest, and they all go foraging for water and hmm. protein, and they all do everything.
1: And they all um, lay the eggs. Like, are they all? No, working? that's
2: not true. That gets really complicated. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's still a queen, but um, there's no really division of tasks. Um, then, but as the colony, as a, if you look at a different species, which has a huge colony, uh, like a yellow jacket wasp, for example, you know, they're, they're going to have some wasps that are just building paper, some wasps that are, are just uh, building the nest, some wasps that are just foraging for protein, some that are just foraging for nectar. So oh, wow. that you can start having specialized tasks and um, that's, that's sort of a, a dive into uh, another <laughs> nerdy place. But I think as we grew from 20 people or 25 people to now where we're more than 100, um, we had to change organizationally and create specialized kind of groups within it to, to make it function. And then each of those groups have directors or or leaders um, to maintain those sections.
1: And so you mean sections like the Shokayu section, the Kaisha section, or do you mean like the Bateria, like this Allah of dancers, that Allah of dancers?
2: I mean more like Allahs. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So we have the sections inside of the Bateria, of course. And um, we've really, really, over the past four years or so, um, even put more responsibility on section leaders and, within the bateria, like really uh, focusing that. So having a section leader and having that person be responsible for um, communicating with the section, evaluating the performance capacity of the members in the section um, to judge mm-hmm. whether or not they're ready to go from, um, from parade bateria to performance bateria
1: or it may And they make that call. They're the ones they recommend
2: it. Yes. It's, okay. it's a conversation that, that I have with, with each section leader. Um, but I, I never overrule. I've never overruled a section leader. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've um, asked if they think this person is ready because I think they're ready. Um, uh-huh. but largely I think it's important to, and I learned this from Shakare is to give leaders responsibility and then trust your leaders.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: So, um, so yeah, within the bateria, there's there's the sections, but then within the whole escola, there's the alas, basically. And so we have the bateria, we have the pasista wing, we have the alegria wing of dancers, we have the malandros. We used to have a group called Peja Flor. Um, and so uh, there's leaders for each of those different alas.
1: Gotcha. How much do the dancers cross over between the different alas?
2: Um, There's actually quite a bit, you know, people, the model is always changing. But largely, when dancers start in Austin Samba, they start with ala And then they um, try out to be in the performance group for Alegria, and they can also try out to be in the Pasista wing at this point. Okay, so it's
1: kind of, so if if people haven't listened to um, the Jacare and Imani episode two podcast, they might not realize that the Bateria and it now, it sounds like also the Pasistas or, or the dancers are... There's there's multiple levels so there's like the parading group where kind of anybody can join. Oh, I'll let you describe it.
2: Yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. So, in across all parts of Austin Samba, whether it's dance or drum, there are different levels. There are uh, kind of a rehearsal level. So that's just anyone who comes in as part of the rehearsal group um and with with and you're
1: accepted into the community you can you know you're invited to the barbecues and you're just you're a part of it right oh heck
2: yeah yeah Yeah.
1: um
2: they're absolutely and and but i should also say before we move further is that we have an intake period in both the drums and the dance and that has been for many years now um usually in may kind of after carnival season here Mm -hmm. and so that's when new new members of the community come in and learn. So we're teaching them dance or we're teaching them drum. So you pretty much have to go through that to become even a part of the rehearsal crew. It's,
1: I love that. I love that idea.
2: It works really well. <laughs> of like not
1: constantly taking in new people and having to start from scratch. I, I love the idea of just having everyone come in at one time period.
2: Yes, it, it has it's challenges in that there are people that um, are wanting to join the group that are masters in percussion, for example. (laughs) Um, And they may even be a percussion instructor at a local high school or middle school or, you know, play with the symphony here. I mean, they're, yeah, but we, we, and occasionally we make exceptions for those people um, Mm -hmm. to just come in at any time of the year. But well, not time, but uh, up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, at some point most... you got to learn the material and learn to play with others. Like it's not just about
2: exactly. So, and you know the boot camp. Yeah, we call it cool. the boot camp, and um, you're starting from scratch. And the same thing happens with dancers, right? You'll have you'll have dancers that come in with a lot of experience, but we kind of throw everyone together. So you. Um, may have a lot of experience, but you're in this kind of intake period, this boot yeah. camp time mm-hmm. standing mm-hmm. next to someone who has never picked up a drumstick before ever.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: you know, and so we start at the rudimentary basics. Um, I've always though, as an aside, been a little bit surprised. There are people that will come in and especially on the drummer side, which I'm more familiar with and say, Oh yeah, I've I've played samba. I'm experienced, uh, you know I I've been a marching band. I've, I've done all these things my whole life, and um, they actually need to be in that boot camp, and they need to go back to the beginning. And
1: yeah, um, I think anybody who's run a group has experienced that. Oh, I've I played for years, and then you're like, oh, it's can't humbling. Hold a stick. <laughs> yeah,
2: some people don't want to be humbled. You know, like mm. there's plenty of people that this isn't the right fit for them um they they maybe uh don't want to have to go through all this process don't want to be as committed as we ask people to be um and we would want everyone you know it's it's really exciting after the intake period or during the intake period because there are so many people like you know you could walk in with all of our experienced members and new members and have a bateria that's like 65 people or something just giant it feels so wonderful um, but there's going to be a lot of attrition from that new class of people coming in, hmm. um, because some of them, maybe they thought they would love it. They don't, um, or they realize they love it, but actually it's too much work. You know, I've had, they have all these other things going on in their lives and they just can't commit to it and that's okay. You know,
3: not not yeah. everyone
2: can stay, but we like to give everyone equal chance to, to do it. Um, And yeah, that intake period is is super important. And that was a shift that happened. I couldn't tell you the year. Um, I think it was probably somewhere around 08 or 09. We started realizing that we needed a more formal training period for new Mm -hmm. people because they were Mm -hmm. just coming in at any time of the year. And it was confusing for them. It meant sort of backwards motion for us yes um, and so it we we really formalized this annual cycle which is starts with the boot camps and intake period and that's in may june and then we're choosing a theme for the year um we're revealing our theme around brazil day in september and then we're working on a new show all the way through the year until carnival of uh, the following year so we just have this really Clean cycle in that way.
1: Yeah, that's nice.
2: Yeah, and so when people uh, come on board, they're they're everyone's welcome in rehearsal, um, and then they move up into different levels based on um, commitment to the group, experience, talent, knowledge of the material, and if they're demonstrating all of those things, and they're moving from a rehearsal level to a parade level and from a parade level to a performance level. Um, and performance, obviously parading is performing too, but we just use that to mean, um, gigs like at bars or, um, private gigs oh. that we're hired for. Um, and then even above that, there's sort of like a grupo especial team that, is rather, it's kind of fluid, but it's a smaller group that we use for kind of the most, the, the highest end shows that we do. Um, and sometimes that's even driven by necessity. Um, like last year, we played um, our big show at the Paramount Theater, which is a historic theater downtown, beautiful, amazing space. It's right on Congress Avenue, the main road in Austin. And it's an exceptional um, venue, but we could only take 40 people there. Um, gotcha. yeah. And that create, that creates a lot of strain on people for sure. Um, and, uh, because that, that means from a bateria of about 45 people, I can only take 18. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's tough and it's, it's, it comes down to skill and commitment, and knowledge of the material, all of those things.
1: Yeah. And so the levels are, you've gone through boot camp and you can come to rehearsal. And then the next level is parade. And then the next level is like bar gig, kind of, I don't know what you call that level. And then there's like the elite performance level. And then like sort of elite especial. Exactly. Gotcha.
2: And there's no, for the bateria, there's no tryouts to go between those levels. Uh, we experimented with that for a little while too. And um, that was not successful, f- largely because I think it was too much pressure on people. It just pushed mm-hmm. a little bit too far for a community group. Mm. Yeah. Um, and... It just created a lot of unnecessary stress, and not only that, but it was just uh, time-consuming to implement tryouts, and you know, be we we had like grading sheets, and we had people, you know, you had to. I mean, it was intense. Um, And I, so we we abandoned that though, and then that's kind of when the section leaders started becoming even more important because um, it's it's really one of their responsibilities to observe and know and be able to, you know, the director, whether it was Jacare or me, um, and now Devin, who's also helping direct. um, We, when you're up there in front, you can't see the skill level of everybody when you have 50 drummers in front of you um, or, you know, 50 dancers in front of you. um, So having those section leaders is just critical.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because ideally they they can, they're running sectionals and they're seeing how people are playing and doing all that. Yeah,
2: yeah,
3: exactly. Do you guys
1: have sectionals? Do you guys?
2: We do. do In we fact, have- uh, there's a sectional that's happening right now. <laughs> 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 uh, the Kaishas are having a sectional with Devin, and then uh, tomorrow will be the rest of the groups having sectionals as well. Cool. So we we've been trying. We started last year. Trying to implement a once per month sectional for um, kind of this more critical time of the year when we're preparing mm. material
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um you've also we've talked about this in the past, the boot camp. you start everyone in the bateria part of the boot camp on Kaisha.
2: correct, yeah, so and
1: just the efficiency of of having everybody on one instrument that makes it a lot easier to teach, but um then do you have like this massive terrible kaishas <laughs> coming in? Like, how do you handle that? How do you handle the skill level, I guess? Um, so
2: the kaisha is such a, it's the core, right, of the bateria. Um, yeah, so kaisha and third is is really core. And um, it, it it is a challenging, it's challenging, I think, to, for people that especially have never picked up a drumstick, to be given a caixa and taught how to play that drum. Um, I think, though, that it's so critical to understanding parchido alto and understanding clave and understanding swing. All of those things mm-hmm. are all in the kaisha. And yes. so it's really the best place for them to start. And it does make it easier if everyone's on the caixa Um so boot camp is usually about four to six weeks. We always say it's four, and then we end up doing six because we always feel like we need some more time. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just kind of nice to do. And actually, you know, experienced members will come back for the boot camp and either play the instrument that they like to play or try something new just to cool. play. So while the kaishas are learning how to play kaisha, there are going to be surdus that are accompanying them. Um after that time period. Um, there, like I said, there's going to be some attrition. Some people get kind of frustrated. Maybe they realize they, they don't, they have a harder time with keeping a rhythm or playing the pattern. Um, but you know, we just really start everyone with one hand, Kaisha, what's the most important part, the accent part of the ride, and then, um, teach them how to play with two hands and, and move forward from there at the end of that time period some people we identify just through a very organic process that that may um, be a better fit for or have a big desire for a surdu or something else so
1: um ah gotcha
2: they don't just because they started with Kaisha and boot camp doesn't mean that's where they're going to be for the whole first year for most people that's the case um but there are people that we we realize oh gosh we need some first surdues. we're we're running low on firsts or something like that. Um, we'll move people there, but, um, never can people, almost never can people go straight into Tam or shokaliu or third. It's always Kaisha first and second. Mm-hmm. Um, the more advanced instruments, hepiki that, that takes, um, some time. Even if you're like, you know, we have some amazing drummers and um, some of them I like to keep on Kaisha. I mean, it's the director's job to decide what balance you need. Um, And that may supersede someone's personal desire, right? So someone may really, really want to play third, but I really need some very strong Kaishas, for example.
1: And I think that's where community comes in is that that person, if the person's willing to support the community and not their own Only want to satisfy their own goals, then you have people who are willing, okay, I'll play Kaisha now because my community needs me to, you know?
2: Yes, you're exactly right.
1: Yeah. I think that's super powerful part of what makes your model work.
2: Yeah. And I think also being really clear about why too, you know, why, so, you know, maybe, maybe playing this Kaisha for a year is going to give you the the exact um, basis that you need to really understand how to play third or really understand Mm -hmm. how to play first. Even, you know, a lot of people come in and they think, oh, I'm not a great percussion player. I'm going to play a surdu. Surdu's are very difficult and, and incredibly important instruments. And if you are not right on time and able to keep time and play that drum with authority, um, it's a, it's a big problem. So you can't just, throw people on SIRDU because they're not good at kaisha. It's really good. Like get good at kaisha and then find yourself on SIRDU and these other instruments that are, that are all, I mean, they're all important. Right. But
1: I want to make a billboard out of what you just said. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So you guys don't, if I remember correctly from talking to you before, most people who come in, they play Kaisha unless they show some good aptitude for another instrument, but they'll stay on Kaisha for a year and they need to request to switch to another instrument, right? At the next boot camp or, or talk correct. to the section leader of another section. Yeah. That's right.
2: And actually, this year, um, Devin had the idea of doing a, we've kind of done that in also a very organic way in the past, but um, we put out a big survey and people from, New and old were able to rank what their interest was in an instrument, you know, like mm. their ultimate goal is to move to TAM. Um, and that's good to know. But we might not be able to do that this year, but it's good to know that this is where you want to be headed toward. Yeah. Yeah. Um some people are really happy with kaisha, you know? is my favorite instrument. I love playing kaisha. It's uh,
1: it's fun to groove, just you can just hang out and groove on it, yeah.
2: Yes. And um yeah, I, I love Kaisha. And, and there's a lot of people that will start with Kaisha and just realize, hey, yeah, this is my instrument. This is the one that I want to play
1: well, The great thing, too, is like it, it seems like a lot of groups struggle for like finding people who can play Kaisha and know the patterns and all that stuff. But you're kind of automatically training everybody to play it. So if you need more, you could move people. You know, tambourine not necessarily a critical, super, super critical instrument. I mean, you can have like fewer TAM players, but you need a lot of kaishas, like you need the wall of sound and you can move people around. That's a great thing.
2: Yes, exactly. That's a very good point. And in fact, uh, Austin Samba did not have a tambourine section or a Shikalu section for about the first, almost the first decade of its existence. Mm. Um, so um, we didn't start introducing that until maybe about 10 years ago. Um, and now of course they seem totally essential and indispensable, but, um, you can, all you need to make Samba happen is surdu and Kaisha, right? Um, and so all those other things are providing this wonderful, um, icing, icing on the cake. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think a lot of people are attracted if they don't really if they don't have a lot of experience, they're attracted to the tambourine because it's small and it's not this big, heavy thing I have to carry around. But what they don't realize right away is that it's it's freaking hard to play. The hardest. <laughs> it takes it takes years to learn. Yeah, it's, yeah.
2: And here's the other thing I would say is shokalyu, I think, is one of the most advanced instruments that you can play as well. Um, maybe if you keep me talking, I'll tell you every single instrument is the most advanced you could play. But. <laughs> it's not just to like rest on your laurels you know i'm not good at any other instrument i'm going to play shakalu instrument um we learned that kind of early on uh you have got to really know how to swing and you got to be strong because that's it's hard to play that instrument for a while like you know and keeping it stands it out
1: It, it cuts it's very loud
2: yeah it cuts
1: through exactly if you're not if you're not if you're not right in If you're not right in the swing where you need to be, you're going to train wreck the thing.
2: Yeah, like, you know, we want all of our kaishas to be as crisp and swinging and perfect as they can be. But if you have a little bit of messiness in kaisha, it's going to kind of blend into a hole a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you really just want that, you know, you just need that. And if someone is not perfect with their left hand or something like that, we want them to strive toward getting perfect, but it kind of just it falls out in the wash a little bit. One shakalyu that is not right <laughs> on is yeah. going to drive me nuts. It's going to drive everyone nuts. It's just not, yes. it's going to distract from the the whole picture of the rhythm.
1: And I think it kind of erodes that sort of, if you've got one person... Say on bell, you know, that also cuts through um, pretty well. And if you, or, or Shokai, if you got one person that's consistently kind of out and sort of like, it drives everybody crazy and it kind of erodes that whole, we're working together to, to build a thing, you know, you've got one person that's just tearing it down week after week. It's so disheartening.
2: It is. And then how do you have that conversation with that person? And talk about better fits for them in the bateria it's not an easy discussion to have
1: it's it's not yeah one thing i took away from what imani was saying when we interviewed her last time is she's like i just talk about it from the very beginning what people need to know to be able to perform and i just keep reiterating and giving people feedback and constantly having the conversation which i think is that's an easy way to um, an easier way to do it. If you've been doing it from the beginning is you just keep that conversation go, look, you're a little bit behind the beat. Look at this part, you're not coming in right. Like, you know, just yeah. instead of ignoring it until it's a huge problem, I guess. Yeah,
2: exactly. And I think, um, you know, sometimes that can go on for a couple of years. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's tough. But, but I think being clear up front about, about, the requirements, and then yeah, exactly. Providing feedback as much as possible is is important, and it's difficult. I mean, I will be the first to admit it is hard to be able to provide feedback to every single drummer, and to know, you know, as a leader, what what's status everyone is in when you're when you're also trying to learn breaks and material and and doing yes. this other um, these larger. Ensemble, working on these larger ensemble issues, it's harder to know how, what each person needs to do and give each person individualized feedback. Yes. Uh, That's definitely tricky.
1: Yes. And uh, hopefully the section leaders can take on some of that, but
2: they can. And assistant director, you know, like Devin. Devin is an uh, amazing drummer and player and um, he can hone right in on where someone is not succeeding and not yeah. playing their best. Yeah. And so those sectionals are really important for that too because in a sectional, it's a smaller crew and you can really see, oh, that person is just right behind on their left hand. That's what the problem is or right, whatever, whatever right. the problem
1: is. Exactly, exactly. But you almost need to be like, not only like you don't have to be the best player to be a section leader, but you gotta, you know, you gotta be good enough to demonstrate all the things and to be able to understand what it should sound like and how to get there and what the problem is. But you also kind of need to have a higher emotional intelligence to be able to explain that to people without pissing them off. You know, it's it's such a, a mix of skills there that that's a unique person.
2: Yeah. It can be a big job. And uh, you know, sometimes, it takes a little while to identify who that person is. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to go back a little bit to, um. I think so many groups in this country are at, like I said, like the 15 to 25 size and are trying, they want to get bigger. They want to, to grow, but they're, they struggle between, having enough members, say, to cover all instruments and all gigs. So sometimes they let somebody in who maybe isn't ready and then mm-hmm. you know, that causes some problems like, um I have this theory though that um if you play a gig and you get seen by other people, if you guys are all really tearing it up and you've got really good players, you're going to attract other new members who are going to be good players. Cause good people who know percussion know good percussion from bad percussion. They know drum circle from From good players, you know, like actual good arrangements and good people who've practiced together. You know, they know the difference. And I, I have this theory that good players attract good players. I don't know. What do you think about that?
2: I think that I mean I'm only one data point here in Austin, Texas, but I would say that my data point would support that theory um, because we we definitely have over the years attracted more talented, experienced drummers right off the bat um, because they see what we're doing and it's quality. And I think they realize it's something that they would like to invest their time in.
1: And it's rare. Like, it's not that rare to see a group of drummers who are just sort of, you know, they mess up the break and they, they kind of laugh their way through, you know, this sort of I'm making it sound really bad. I'm sounding really negative. <laughs> you know what I you know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 rare to see a tight group. And it's not that rare not to. So if you're someone who understands good drumming and you see a tight group playing, you're like, oh whoa, like this is really cool. And you wanna join. Mm-hmm. And you wanna be a part of it. Cause you know it's rare.
2: Yeah, and I think that all comes back to discipline a little bit and Um, Just really, again, like having a culture that's pushing everyone to improve themselves. You know, it's like Samba as a path to personal growth.
3: Yeah, (laughs) totally.
2: Like a whole, uh, you know, spiritual growth retreat based on Samba. Um, But I think it's really about um, pushing people to be better than they are. And uh, that's how you end up not having those shows or experiences where it's kind of just a goofing off situation. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um how do you have if you have all these people coming in for boot camp, does the school own a bunch of kaishas Where do you get all these caixas for all these new people that show
2: yeah. up? Yeah, the the school owns uh, all the drums. Mm. So, um people once they become invested in samba, a lot of people will buy their own drums. Yeah. Um but At the beginning, uh, we provide all the sticks, straps, drums, everything that they need in order to uh, play. And some people will play with us for years and never buy their own drum. Um, And they'll, you know, once they've been in the group for a while, and we know they're going to stay in the group and we trust them that they can take one of the school drums with them home and have it with them. Um, But, but yeah, we provide everything and uh, we don't, Ask anyone to pay any dues, really. We haven't had like a monthly dues requirement since probably two thousand and six nice. or so, and that's, that's wonderful. Great. And um, you know, I think I think Jacare's philosophy and mine too is that, and some of the other leadership is that it's way more fun to. To have a lot of gigs which can sometimes be overwhelming you know you're like oh my god yes. another gig yes. um but you know i would rather people pay the rent that way than have to pay dues um,
1: totally so
2: so so far so good you know we did as you know we, we had a big change this year we lost our rehearsal space that we've had for about a decade and that was free and right. so right. we had this like amazingly fortunate situation where we had a huge full gym and it was free and so we could expand the, the size of the group until we hit the walls basically and yeah, so it was
1: like an elementary school or something right school, school um gym? yeah it was at the
2: austin state hospital which is um uh, a hospital here and they had a big rec center and mm. like basketball court center and that was we were extremely lucky to yeah, have yeah that for so long. Um, but they're they're actually gonna be tearing down a bunch of buildings in the Austin State Hospital campus and building a lot of new facilities, which is really, really great for, for them. But yeah. unfortunately, that means that our facility is no longer available. So we are we're in a place where we're just now for the first time in a long time paying rent. Um, and started that in September, and it'll be interesting to see it, you know, how over time. Or if over time that changes any of our dynamics uh, yeah. in terms of gigs and hopefully hopefully we'll never have to collect dues from people. Uh, that yeah. would be the, the best goal that we could have.
1: Yeah, one thing Blockwell Agria has done is um, we pay our rent a year ahead of time, yeah. so um, we kind of lock down the <laughs> lock down the space and and money from gigs all goes into. Um, like we, it's an LLC, and all money goes into the bank account. And then, you know, about this time of year, we pay um, all the rent for the next year.
2: Hmm. That's a that's an interesting idea. Just
1: something, something we don't have to think about it. Yeah, we don't have to think about it.
2: Yeah, that may be something that we'll have to think about in the future. Obviously, it takes the right kind of landlord.
1: Yeah, it's a it's at a musicians' union hall, is the name Uh-oh. of it. So it's like a a, a union. And they let us have a closet there. I think actually the band paid to build like a little room in this um, within the bigger room, and we can store instruments there, which is so oh, handy. That would be and, so uh, nice. Some of our sa- sound equipment and stuff. Yeah, you don't have to move move everything around all the time. But most people own their own instruments, um, so we don't have this giant stack of kaisas. Like it sounds like you guys have and surdus and things. Yeah, um, and that's a
2: real that's a real struggle to have to. Um, move those from one place to another yes and, um that's definitely not easy how many people are in bloco alec now
1: oh maybe like 25 drummers and four to six dancers it kind of changes depending we're getting ready to do a big carnival show um coming up so it's the numbers are kind of growing people are trying to you know um people are excited about that so yeah I've got people coming and yeah. Now
2: is that a carnival show that y'all are organizing or it's someone else that you're.
1: Yeah. There's a, a local Brazilian who, um, is a DJ and a producer and he also owns a cafe in town and he, he organizes it. Uh, he does one like every other year or so. And we partner with him and do shows. So he's, he's organizing it. a couple years ago we did our own and it was amazing and it was a good experience, but we realized how much work all that is. And, uh, so we kind of stopped self producing at least for now yes self producing yeah, shows. yeah that is a lot
2: of work for sure yeah and are y'all doing a theme for that and kind of a different repertoire
1: they're nailing that down yeah. now yeah so it's um the theme is is light so it's a little bit um it's a little bit what do i want to say like uh it's not specifically nailed down oh. yet but um exactly what he means by that <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah
2: well that there's it seems like there's a whole lot of potential for light
1: <laughs> yeah yeah so it's it's pretty loose we're but we're working on all the song we've got the the you know the repertoire all worked out we have a, a band component it's not just batteries we've got a band and cool and all that so all the repertoire we're working on that every week and building things up and Hiring other singers and stuff to come in. So,
2: yeah. That's fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be good. Um, You guys are a nonprofit? Or you're under an umbrella nonprofit?
2: That's right. We're under an umbrella nonprofit called the Austin Creative Alliance, which supports local um, creative groups. So we're not an official nonprofit, but uh, we we work through them.
1: Yeah, and then do you guys apply for grants? Do you have somebody who writes grants for you, or?
2: or oh, Courtney, I wish grants? that we did that more.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, in fact, we just missed a little bit of a deadline, and I feel like we're always missing these deadlines. Um, hmm. And
1: it's so much work. It is a lot
2: of work, but I I do feel like if someday we could prioritize it, it could be a game changer for us. I feel like there's there's a lot of support for the arts here in Austin. There's a lot of potential funding um, available and I feel like if we could get on kind of an annual cycle that has some relatively assured funding through grants it would definitely free us up in a way you know maybe we wouldn't feel like we have to scramble and do so many um, corporate gigs for example or events Mm -hmm. Uh, and those are fun but uh, it, it might be, it would be wonderful if, you know, even every year there was $5,000 that's relatively guaranteed that's coming in that can cover um, costume expenses or or whatever those needs are, a rent, for example. Um, but yeah. no, uh, we haven't really prioritized that yet. It's something that I think over the next year or two would be very wise for us to do.
1: Maybe you could. I don't know. Maybe you got a big group there. Maybe somebody has some expertise in that. Maybe.
2: Oh yes, we we definitely we have the expertise. It's just <laughs> the time, just yeah, off so the ground. Fun. I don't know what's keep keeping us yeah. from doing that,
1: but <laughs> yeah, life,
2: like um, jobs and everything else, yeah. really.
1: <laughs> yeah, what's what keeps us all from doing any all the things we want to do yes, yeah. exactly? Do you guys have? Um, the word is escaping me. Somebody who helps you book shows like, um, like an agent. Oh, what do you call it? Like a, yes. Like an agent.
2: No, we do not.
1: You guys you're like a known entity in town and people know to hire you.
2: Yes. Um, you know, I think um, I have the great benefit of inheriting uh, so much work that Jacare did for this group and really oh. hustling around and, um, making people aware of us and building all these connections. And, um, you know, I just get to kind of saunter in now, (laughs) not that I wasn't (laughs) part of all that to a certain extent, but, um, and take advantage of that. And, and yeah, one of those, one of those advantages is that we're, we're very well known. And so people are, thankfully people reach out to us quite a bit. Um, and we have to say, unfortunately, no, um, quite often, but that's a good position to be in as well.
1: Do you, I find corporate gigs to be really hard because other gigs you do, people respond and they start dancing and they're really excited to see you. But I find like we've, we've done some gigs, I won't say where, but we've done some corporate gigs here in Portland and it, and people just sort of stand there and look at you (laughs) maybe they pull their phone out and record you for a little bit but they're just sort of like and there'll be a couple people like dancing but you're just like whoa it's a weird energy at some of those
2: yes they uh, they can have that and it, it can be a little bit um you kind of stiff yeah if it's if it's a stiff event um then you have to sort of switch your mentality over as much as possible and just think, ah, you know, I'm, we're doing this for us, you know, <laughs> this is, right, is going right. to be fun because we're going to have fun doing it. Um, right. But yeah, those those are tough when people are not quite understanding what they're getting into. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that, though, because I kind of feel like we had a, a lot more of those in the earlier years, but we have not had those as much lately. And it will, it will kind of the, sometimes it seems like that's what's going on. Like everyone's just staring at us and it's like, you know, our show is 30 minutes. Our standard show is 30 minutes and it is nonstop and it is loud and it is, it's crazy. And a lot of people are just standing there with their phones, like what in the world is happening right now? (laughs) But we, then we try to have a dance party at the end. And um, I've been surprised really at, at the, Reception that we've gotten from a hmm. lot of these corporate gigs and people coming out and learning how to dance and shaking you do it. Do like
1: a little dance lesson or Kinda.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like real time. It's more like follow the leader.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. We yeah. like
2: keep it really simple with mostly with uh, super slow like samba hege and yeah, um, have one of the dance leaders lead everyone and it's super fun. Like a lot of people will come out and dance on the dance floor when we do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We actually have a, a a Brazilian guy that we hire sometimes for some of the gigs to, to do a follow the leader, exactly what you're talking about and people get so into it. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, when you're at work, like you don't necessarily want to cut loose in front of your coworkers. So I can kind of see that too.
2: <laughs> yeah, if it's that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, if they've had a couple of drinks, maybe it gets a little right. easier. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have? I think I know the answer to this question, but you, um, how do you motivate people to practice and get better? Is there? Um, do you have tips? for that
2: um i usually just threaten people (laughs) physical violence (laughs) Uh, that is extremely hard people have to be motivated to improve and i think it comes back again around to um having a culture that's striving towards excellence and being bought into that um Mm -hmm. and having a true passion for what you're doing um because if you have that and you want to improve and you want to support your fellow zombistas by improving, um, I think then you're going to be motivated to rehearse. There's, there's not, there's only you know. I could say every week I could stand up and say everyone needs to be practicing at home. And sometimes it feels like I do do that every week. Um, but there's nothing I can say that's going to force people to do that. Um, and again, without like tryouts that's putting extraordinary pressure on people or anything like that it really just has to come from within and i think that that arises from the culture of the group um, mm-hmm. and i think you know just having some really strong um some strong cultural identity around that um, that excellence the means towards excellence or the uh, yeah. path towards excellence.
1: Yeah. I know, I know a lot of the people who are section leaders in Austin Saba from Brazil camp and it's, you have a lot of high, or what am I trying to say? You have a lot of skilled players who are really bought into the community. And I think that helps so much.
2: Absolutely. Austin. It'll Ele- Elevate the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Austin is Full of extraordinary extraordinary people with great talent, and we are very fortunate to have a talented crew of people.
1: Mm-hmm. I think another thing that motivates people to practice is if if the leadership is prepared, you know I think sometimes uh, you guys probably have not experienced this in a long time, but for some groups, I've been part of groups where it's like every week you you show up and it's like kind of the same thing because. You know, the, the leadership feels a little bit like like they didn't actually prepare what they were going to do or what was going to happen. And then that can make you just like, well, why am I going to practice? Because it's just going to be the same thing we played last week. And you can kind of feel like you can get by on your own skill level. So I think that also, I don't know if that makes sense, what I just said. Yes, it. it does
2: make sense. And I think that there's a, a tricky balance that happens or that, or that, that needs to happen for the samba school to be successful which is the balance between introducing new material and keeping people excited about new material and perfecting existing material and current material Um, and also especially if you throw dance in the into that mix uh if you're you know the Mm. dancers are always just you know, on my case all the time. And I feel for them. If any of them are out there listening to this, I'm sorry. But it's it's really hard to introduce new material for them because um, if we're always introducing new material, which excites us a lot and keeps us motivated, then they have, they have nothing to dance to. It's just like total chaos. Um, yeah. So like striking the balance between the sort of standard set, and then evolving, slowly evolving that standard set um, over time and then keeping people excited and motivated through learning new material is
1: yeah. tricky. Yes.
2: Yeah. I think that, um, I think it's important that, and I think most groups do have this sort of core material uh, and that's that's what we teach in our boot camp as well. Like here's your core material, and we almost always play this in every parade. And we've been playing some of the same breaks and rhythms since I started with uh, Austin Saba in two thousand and five. Um, but we also are every year learning a bunch of new material um, to keep us interested. And you know, it's just fun to learn new stuff, new new rhythms, new songs. Yeah, um, yeah and then some of those kind of get integrated into the core for a little while and they may be there for a while and then filter out of the core kind of depending on on the I guess how much we like it or how much we want to keep it around
1: Do you make that decision on what new material comes in and are you
2: Yes I do mm-hmm. um, and it comes from other people as well there's plenty of suggestions that are coming up. Um, but, um, largely, I mean, ultimately the decision rests with me and, um, I think it is one of the more challenging things that I do as director is figure out how far I can push people. Yeah. I don't want to push too far, but I, I want to push just enough so that Mm -hmm. keeps it interesting. So there are some times when you could come to an Austin Samba rehearsal and it's, it may even seem a little phoned in, like we're just playing our core material Um, and that, that's, that's a little, that's, that's conscious in a way. It's not, it's not that we're just resting on our laurels. It's like, okay, we need to step back. And it's amazing. Actually, there are rhythms and breaks that we have been playing for more than a decade and when you have new people rotating into the group every year they still are not perfect like there's still work that we can do on them it's it's a it's incredible um it's very it's very zen (laughs) in that way um you know it's Mm. like something that we could that we will never achieve perfection right it's like we can just get closer and closer and closer to it um and so it's nice to actually. It might it might seem like, oh my God, we've played slow samba five bazillion times. We really have to play it again, and then you right. play it, and there's a second surgery that's off, or right. you know something just doesn't sound right. The accent's not right. So right. it's always worth coming back to that that material as well.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, you can't let it set too long because as new people come in, it it atrophies for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you about your experiences in Brazil. You played with um, Kubango, right? You um, went down there and rehearsed with them?
2: I did, yeah. I've been to Rio three times now. And um, the first time was right after I left uh, Wisconsin and moved here. And I went on Jorge Alabe's tour and it was wonderful and um, Mm. got introduced I think it was 10 days and we stayed in an apartment in Copacabana and um, I, we went to different Samba schools almost every night. So that was a wonderful introduction to that world. And then the the other two times I went, I have been with Jacare, and he is just so incredibly connected down there and um, opened up so many experiences for me and other people that we've traveled with. And so, yeah, I've got to, got to play with some various blocos down there and um, do some rehearsing with uh, Chi. And then the last time I was there, I got to do a rehearsal in the Quadra and a street rehearsal with uh, Kubango. Cool. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, I felt a little guilty, just sort of like sidling in and taking a Kaisha and, you know, playing with folks that have been, you know, working there in a whole year toward that. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, I hope it, I hope it wasn't too egregious because <laughs> it was, it was really an amazing experience, especially the street rehearsal that we did with Kubango, which felt like it lasted for twelve hours, and <laughs> I was playing Kaisha so fast, and I remember I was standing next to Jacare and you know we were right by uh, the, the the loudspeakers, and you know just slowly moving Whoa. down the street, and um, you know after about an hour, it's just nonstop. There, there is no stopping, and. Yeah. Uh, my hands were, you know, they just get kind of numb and they're doing their thing Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be doing, but you really are not in control of them anymore. Um, They just have moved into their own little world. (laughs) And both of us (laughs) would feel this like great sense of relief when we would have the, you know, what we call the two break or or whatever you want to call it, like, and then you're back into samba. It's just like,
1: Yeah, you got like one beat to like...
2: (laughs) a lifetime yeah Yeah. Uh, but yeah there's those experiences have been absolutely wonderful there's just nothing like going down there to um help you understand samba and Mm -hmm. feel the actual swing of samba and you know you go Mm -hmm. down there and, and play with these groups and and come, you think you, we think we're doing pretty good, like swinging and playing samba really well. And then you go down there and then you come back and it's just like, Whoa, Oh my gosh, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I think. One of the things that uh, Jacare always said as well, is that he is preparing us to be able to go down and play with just about any group down there. That was one of his goals. And mm-hmm um I think um achieved you know like uh, many of us have been able to go down there and um just step right in and play and know what we're doing and yeah our accent might be a little bit a little bit American but um but we've been able to to at least join in and that's that's super invaluable it's wonderful you were down yeah. there last year right
1: hmm yeah last couple of years I've I've gone down and, uh, yeah. And have you paraded with anyone? No. Uh, -uh. I mean, I've had the, I've been encouraged to, but I'm, I I hesitate to, to jump. I don't feel like unless I'm there and I'm a part of the community that it's, it's something Mm -hmm. that I, um, uh, kind of what you were talking about before, like feeling like you're not sure if this is really like, What am I trying to say? Yeah.
2: I struggle with that. It's
1: like, it's like it's their community and it's what they're doing. And it would be strange if like, even with our, you know, they're the best in the world and they're very tight and there's a long history of oppression of Samba and all these things. And, and and there's a reason why this group is here in this neighborhood for this reason. And they're all friends and they babysat their kids and they all grew up together. You know what I'm saying? They all know each other. And, and even in Portland with our community, which is is strong but it's not like that um it would be strange if somebody stepped in you know and and played with us i don't think during a rehearsal i mean i think during a rehearsal is fine but like you know during a performance or like a parade i think that's a little i'm not sure um i don't feel like that's my place if, if that makes sense and yeah. and um if i went down there and i was a part of a community and i really you know became immersed in the community like i know some um like Chris Quaid Cotu from Germany mm-hmm. and Clarissa mm-hmm. have, like they've gone down there and they've lived down there. Like Chris married a Brazilian who, and he's, you know, was invited to to parade with all these groups. You know, he gets invited. He's a desired person. So I feel like that's a little bit, that's, that's different than uh, like, I don't want to, I don't, it's the Midwest in me. It doesn't want to insert myself into <laughs> that group and Americans have a reputation for doing that too. Like it's a, it's, it's a, it's a thing. I know exactly what so. you mean,
2: and it. I think it's you. Kind of have to like feel it out. Like, does it feel okay that do they? Are, yeah. you, are they really okay with me being here? And it's kind of hard to to read that and know. Um, but, well, and
1: sometimes it's subtle too. Like mm-hmm. you know, they have community instruments there, and if you're taking a drum and it's. You might not notice that somebody else from the community didn't get a chance to pick up that drum before you you know what i'm saying and i'm not saying what you did was wrong because i think you know just like parading in a street rehearsal is is a different situation but i just i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say because i know that what i say right now can step on some toes so i don't know how to my, my feelings are are more complicated
2: it is a complicated issue for sure and i think one of the, one of the things that i loved learning about when i went to brazil the second time which i did not know when i went the first time when i went the first time it was a good exposure to the big samba schools and you know all yeah. the classic samba schools and that was critical the second time i learned about blocos and i just mm-hmm. It was very eye opening to me. And one of the things that I love about Bloco culture is that it is more open. And it's yes. a nice um, way that you can get that experience of playing down there and being part of that samba culture and
1: that's a completely uh, different totally thing to me. Different. i mean because you can go down there you just you you know people are doing that to make money you just pay your fee and you play and they're happy to have you and you're happy to be there and it's a totally different just a fun crazy thing exactly yeah, yeah. the samba school is a completely different situation exactly
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah
2: so that's a good thing to do if you're going down i think is connect connect with the blocos. Um, and a
1: lot of the people who are who are leading blocos they're they're you know directors at at batterias you get to know people and oh yeah you you know you you meet other you meet a lot of people that way and yeah, yeah it's a it's a cool thing yep yeah and sometimes they're
2: actually i think maybe i'm maybe i'm also reading this wrong but sometimes i think they're actually
1: happy to have you like
2: oh yeah more players all right come on <laughs> here's the yeah. here's job yeah. here we go <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah the blocos are fun in that way and it's all just about getting crazy and wearing crazy costumes and just having a good time yeah yep.
2: yeah
1: yeah um, what else was I going to ask you um where do you think your group is headed in the next you know you've had this big transition do you have um like kind of keep sort of trying to keep the same um Thing going, or do you have big plans, or what do you think?
2: I think that the it, this is going to sound unambitious, perhaps, but I think keeping things going is going to be challenging enough. Um, yeah. I think that uh, the group that Jacqueray built is a, pretty astounding, and yes. it's very humbling to be in charge of that group. Um, it's been mm-hmm. I've been doing it now for almost three years, and um, it's it's a lot of responsibility. And I think that um, in many ways, I see myself as like the Tim Cook of Austin Samba. Um, mm. That you know, Jacques Ray was the entrepreneur and the founder, and he built this thing, um, and and I, it's just like Steve Jobs built Apple, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that now it's sort of my responsibility to come in and help it transition from the entrepreneur-run organization into an organization that can withstand time. Like we're about to hit our 20-year anniversary next year and in 2021. And it would be amazing if this group was able to stick around for another 10, 20 years, something like that.
3: Yeah, so yeah. Cool. you know
2: kind of and that's challenging because you know a lot of the way that it, it it was driven so much by his passion and his talent and his um commitment and kind of uh, being the person that is trying to help it move into a, a kind of a sustainable samba school is, is the role that I feel like I'm playing now.
0: And I think a lot of that
2: is just trying to codify parts of the culture and keep them going and also just evolve with the times, you know, new challenges arising with rehearsal space or whatever. But I think that the core culture is very strong and and it's, you know, from the work that he did. So it's just keeping that core, keeping true to that core as we kind of move forward and, and deal with those challenges. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a huge thing. It is. How about, um, how about, um, do you have any thoughts on like where Samba in the U S specifically in general is headed? Any ideas on that?
2: I feel like, um, you know, it's hard to know. I feel like in the time that I've been engaged in Samba in the U S since 2002, and learning about it and knowing it. Um, I feel like throughout that time, there have been Samba groups that have come and gone, and some of them yeah. have stuck it through. Some of them are still around, you know? I mean, like the amphibians has been around since the 90s, and it's still going. I mean, it's that's a very yeah. successful group. Um, at times, I get the feeling like, Samba culture in the U.S. is growing. Um, but I don't know if those those are like short-term trends, you know, like there's just like this kind of well of excitement and new groups that are coming up and then, you know, they're kind of levels itself back out. Um, mm-hmm. What I do see happening, and it will be interesting to see if this trends is more of these super groups coming together and like the experience that we had in Seattle for the solstice parade, um, mm. and I think that is <laughs> so fun and so amazing. And I think it would be yeah. nice if that is the direction that things started going a little bit in the US. Mm. That we mm-hmm. could um, come together regionally and 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 play with each other in these kind of super group type events and. Um, I think, I think that's wonderful. And it, and it does feel like over the last decade or so that I think, honestly, with the advent of social media and all of the, everything that that entails, the connection amongst the Samba communities feels super strong to me now compared to 15 years ago, hmm. um, you know, back 15 years ago or 20 years ago, it was just you know, people keeping in touch via email or phone or whatever, but it just, I feel right. like the, you know, the the North American Samba community, it seems more connected to me than cool. it has in the past. Do you cool. feel that in any way?
1: Well, I haven't been involved in, in it that long, um, enough to see a trend like that. I would love though, if these um super groups, as you explain, so what what Lee's talking about um, for people who don't know is um in Seattle, they've been doing this um solstice parade that used to be at, during the same time as honkfest West. and so all these groups I have been involved in this for a long time. all these groups on the west coast we get together, we'd all travel up, so all the way from like Arcata, Eugene, Oregon, and people come down from Vancouver, Washington, and people from um Portland was always was always a couple people involved but not heavily involved but they're becoming more heavily involved now but um Olympia all these west coast groups like sort of Pacific Northwest groups would get together in Seattle and do this parade together And it was always so much fun well Honkfest and in Solstice kind of split but um Vamala in Seattle has been kind of keeping this this parade going and, and just inviting people. They provide all the materials um, to do Fuentes now is doing a lot of the arrangements every year and they hire him to come up and, um, and do the arrangements. They record everything, make audio recordings slow, fast, and video recordings slow and fast. So people can study the material. They write everything out in like, you know, notation, regular, like, you know, music notation and tablature for people, however you want to learn it. So um, and then send it out to all the groups and to do we'll go around and teach different groups, how to play the different material. We all get together and do this parade together and it's just a joy fest. <laughs> it's so much fun and it keeps getting bigger. So like Nick came a couple of years ago from, and he was at Austin at the time. Shout out, Nick. Yeah. What's up, buddy? <laughs> and then, uh, and you came this last year and it's just been, we're, tra- we, we're trying to like pull in people from other places, but um, yeah, you guys, if you want to participate, definitely stay tuned.
2: I highly recommend it. I'm trying to pull some more people from Austin Samba this, this next year. Um, uh, yeah. I think it's, it's a super fun experience. Nice to play with a big group. It's super well organized. And uh, of course, you know, the Solstice parade in Seattle is pretty fascinating too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes. Yes. Dev Nambi is um, amazing at organizing things. And uh, yes, he is a, the backbone of a lot of what happens with solstice up there. Yeah. Yeah. So huge shout out to him. Yeah. Shout out to them too. Oh my God. Yeah. But I think if,
2: if more of those kinds of things could happen where it's, it's, you don't have that many opportunities in the U S where you can have that sort of bloco, um, street party experience. Uh, and all of us coming together around them is, is really fun. And I, I think, Honk has, has also been a wonderful thing uh, that yes. has evolved over the last uh, decade too. It's just so, the, the the street band, street festival culture is just fantastic and it, it feels like yes. all of those things I hope will kind of keep growing and, and kind of keep interweaving and interacting as we move forward. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. They're kind of like Samba's cousins in a way, like the way it's done in the United States anyway. A lot of those um honk bands exactly style band yeah yeah exactly
2: it is it is a lot a lot like the the experience that we're having with Samba, but just with kind of the more of the brass style band, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I would like to do a there's a parade that happens in Portland, but it's really close to the in in the calendar to when the one in Seattle happens. So I don't know how well it, it could be attended by mm. people. I don't want to take away from Seattle, but it's a night parade and it happens in Portland. It's super cool. It would be really fun to um do, do a similar thing here in Portland. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Maybe we could just do the same material even. You could. <laughs> <laughs> just, just come on down to Portland. Yeah. New
2: costumes, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man, those costumes last year in Seattle were if <laughs> If you were there, you know we all kind of stuck together. I like something about the material of the hat and the there was like a shoulder thing kind of stuck to this other material. <laughs> we were all anytime you'd hug somebody, you'd end up spending the next three minutes detangling yourself it's like
2: true was truly like like water you know we were supposed to be water and we were like water we were (laughs) clinging to each other like water (laughs) surface tension was
1: definitely a part of (laughs) it (laughs) (laughs) okay um as we're winding up please tell me that you spend a lot of time and you do a lot of work for your community what inspires you to keep going
2: I am inspired by the community itself. I I think Samba to me has become so much more than the rhythm that we play. Um, and the people that are part of the group inspire me. And I'm just happy to be able to support their journey as much as I can. Mm. Um, mm. Yes. I'm still like, you know, I love, there's just certain moments when it sounds so good and it feels so good and you can feel it in like every molecule, a molecule of your body. And I still, that inspires me. I still love that yeah. feeling. Um, but really the thing that keeps me going is all of, is the people it's people here and people like you and people that I'm starting to get to know outside of Austin that are part of the broader community. Um, people like Mestre Ayote Nunez are, you know, our teacher and Dudu Fuentes, our teacher. Um, all these folks are so inspiring. Um, so that's what keeps me going.
1: Yeah. Cool. What about, um, what is, do you have like a story about like a really weird gig you did or a strange, <laughs> I'm sure you guys, you to do a lot of gigs.
2: <laughs> we do a lot of gigs. <laughs> Uh, oh gosh it's funny um, I'm drawing my, a blank
1: Mystery Mail had one where they did this show they didn't really know where they were it was all dark and then they had this sort of building and they all spent the night in the building when they woke up in the morning and they realized they were in a cemetery
2: <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> that is very weird yeah um, no we've never had anything like that um you know I feel bad I can't really think of anything super strange.
1: <laughs> That's actually probably pretty lucky. Um what about like so what is one of your happiest moments? Do you have one where you were like what you described you were just feeling that that joy?
2: Um I think that um Strangely, you know, some of the happiest moments can happen in rehearsal. Um, And I can't really, you know, pin down one of those. But beyond that, I feel like the show that we put on at the Paramount this last year was so good. And it felt Mm -hmm. really good to play it and be a part of it. And the crowd reaction was just wonderful. And the feedback that we've gotten was good. The energy was good. Everything about it felt um, just really stellar. And you know, we, we worked hard, worked very hard to make it happen. And then when it was happening, it didn't feel like work at all, which is exactly how it should be, is you practice, 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 practice. So then when you're in the moment, it just feels like, Yes, you know, free flowing, amazing, yes. perfect, um, yes. happy energy. <laughs> and yes. uh, yeah, that, that show was, was wonderful.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to let me pick your brain about what you're doing there in Austin. I think you guys have kind of broken through to another level. You've you've um, found a puzzle that or found a found a solution that um, fits your community to kind of break through a lot of these struggles that that groups are having in North America. I think you have a lot I think you have a lot you can teach us, essentially. So I'm saying but thank you for taking the time to answer my question. Well thank you so much
2: for having me and you know I'm I'm very happy to be part of this bigger community that you're promoting here with the podcast. And i um, happy to share trials and tribulations and joys with, with everybody uh, who's part of this community.
1: Okay. I hope you guys liked that interview and a huge thank you to Lee for uh, once again, for coming on the podcast and, Sharing all your ideas and your knowledge with us. I really appreciate your time and, um, yeah, thank you. Please go to our website to um, check out links to Austin um, Samba and, and all of the links that they provide. Our website is thebrazilianbeat.com. We have a couple shout outs today. Um, Zachary Haimoho, episode 36, um, he sent us a really nice note. just saying how much he appreciated some of the podcasts we've been putting out recently like the one with Talita and and we just really appreciate getting that feedback from you thank you Zachary and um also I have a personal shout out to uh Kevin Seklecki from Pittsburgh he sent me a t-shirt they're one of their um Timbalesa t-shirts and he sent that shirt as kind of a thank you for helping them get some drums through GoSamba.net to their group so um it was really awesome to get this shirt. As some of you know, I love disco and this t-shirt is kind of disco inspired. It's got stars and these surdues across the top with like light beams shooting out. It's freaking awesome. And then the the Pittsburgh City skyline on it. I love it. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's an amazing gift. Um registration is open for California Brazil camp, so go check that out at infocalbrazil.com. We talk about it on this podcast all the time. And uh, please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. We would love that. That would really help us get seen. That actually does a lot for the podcast, so um, help us get seen. Also, please um, support Trofeo Bateria. We're doing a, a fundraiser for Trofeo Bateria, which you heard, the, uh, you heard the intro with Brian Davis talking about, about how important that program is. Um, please don't forget to go and support that now can email us if you have anything you want to say the brazilian beat at gmail.com um catch us on twitter facebook and instagram all right we'll talk to you later thanks for listening